Earth podcast with your host, Jake Weaver, engineered by Cedric Swan. Hey, everybody, we are back with another episode of Midnight on Earth. I'm your host, Jake Weaver, and we're here to bring you more knowledge, more light, and more love. Well, we have another incredible author coming on the show. Actually, he's just an incredible human who also happens to be an author. We have <laughs> Dr. Michael Grosso here today, and we're going to talk about his book, The Yoga of Sound, which is super cool. And... Really, there's a lot going on. You know how much I love music. We talk about this constantly on the show, the healing power of music, the spiritual aspects of music. And here we are talking about this, taking another step, taking a deeper dive. But before we do that, I need you to do something for me. Go to patreon.com slash midnight on earth and check out our Patreon page. Become a patron. Go there and find a tier of support, a way that you can support me. You can support this podcast. You can get the messages that are in this podcast out to more people. It's an incredible thing. It's an incredible platform. Patreon helps so many people around the world, just like this podcast does. So if you're feeling so inclined, please help this podcast. Help this podcast grow more. Go to patreon.com slash midnight on earth and become a patron. And when you're done with that, follow me on Instagram at midnight underscore on underscore earth. That is the address. You can follow me there. Spotify, Apple podcasts, Google podcasts, wherever you go to get your podcast, click that button that connects us. So you know exactly what's going on. When someone incredible comes on the show, you get that notification directly to your device or whatever you use. And of course, most importantly, tell a friend, tell someone that you know that loves these type of podcasts. You know them. They're your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers. They want to learn and grow with us. Bring them here. Midnight on earth.com. Okay. So we're almost to Dr. Michael Grosso, but let's just read his bio that we have very short bios. Here we go. Michael Grosso PhD has taught humanities and philosophy at Marymount Manhattan college city university of New York and New Jersey city university. He is on the board of directors of the American Philosophical Practitioners Association and is a past editor of the journal for that association. The author of several books, including most recently Smile of the Universe and, of course, The Yoga of Sound, The Life and Teachings of the Celestial Songman, Swaminanda Brahmananda. And currently... He lives in Charlottesville, Virginia, where he's joining us today. Hello, Dr. Grosso. Hello, Jake. It's good to, to meet you finally. Yes. Uh, through the ethereal disruptions and various potential <laughs> conscious disruptions, we somehow made it together. Thank you for being here. 
I'm delighted. <laughs> so let's talk about this. This is such a powerful concept because in the Western mindset, we talk about music, we talk about sound, and it kind of comes through this commercial filter. You have people creating these projects in order to create records or CDs, sell those CDs, or in this modern world, get streams and then generate revenue playing shows. And then those shows are an interface point between people, large groups of people in some cases, and music. And you have radio stations and these devices, but there's something missing from that in a general sense, because from the Eastern perspective, music is sacred. And music has the potential to not only change reality, but heal yourself and heal others. There's a whole complete different philosophy around music. So let's talk about that. How would you see those differences between Eastern and Western perceptions of music? Well, I would say that there are there is a tradition of sacred music in the West also. I mean, uh, so that... Uh, is not something that we want to omit in the discussion. But when I uh, engaged with Swami Nada Brahmananda, he was emphatic about the sacredness of uh, the music that he was playing. He d distinguished sharply uh, from popular music. And, uh, for example, he told me a story of, of, the, of a king by the name of Akbar, uh, and it, on one on a special occasion, he had a famous singer, and the audience got all excited and moving about and making noise. And this king Akbar said, "Tomorrow, we will continue this uh, song fest, but anybody who moves or makes any untoward gesture will be hanged." And <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so the next day, uh, Nada told me the story. Everybody was like stone, he said. And uh, the, the, the musician was apparently quite uh, disappointed that the audience was unable to express itself. But the point is that what Nada was trying to say, that in the, in the East, the music is a spiritual practice. I mean, not all music, but the music that Nada was teaching me is a spiritual practice, and and it's not about uh, the audience, it's about yourself. Well, he was constantly telling me uh, in the course of our friendship and the lessons I took from him, this is about you. And so you don't even have to have a, an instrument because the whole thing is an internal spiritual process as well as, of course, learning how to play an instrument. But I might just add here that I had a dream of Nada Brahmananda before I met him, uh, in which uh, I, he was, I didn't know who he was, but I saw this funny man came up to me in the dream and said, I'm going to teach you music. And he says, there are no instruments, which was a paradox, right? So about a week or so later, when by accident I ended up meeting the Swami, one of the things he kept harping on as we went along in the later lessons is that it's not about instruments, it's about my body. My own body is the musical instrument. Uh, and it doesn't matter 
so to speak, communicating with others, it's important how you relate to yourself in the process of learning uh, music. And then when I told him one day that I uh, couldn't afford to buy a pair of tabla, which I couldn't, I was a, a young teacher and still uh, penniless, uh, he, he said, uh, and he started to tap on my head. And he said, you can, you can hit on anything. You don't need a drum. So it, the whole emphasis of his concept of music was that it's my spiritual practice. But on the other hand, in a, in a setting with master musicians, one is supposed to behave accordingly and, and not, uh, you know, uh, carry on or get seem too relaxed and too secular in your appearance uh, in the way you're relating to the music. So those are just a couple of thoughts on uh, uh, distinguishing, uh, I, I, you know, the idea of hanging somebody because they <laughs> applauded too loud is a little, uh, <laughs> a little funny, right? It's, it's a little but, different uh, than how we would react in the Western mind, but let's just back you up a little bit because you brought them up right away. And I just want to yeah. thank you. I just want to thank you right now in front of all the entire planet. Thank you for bringing Nada into my life because I read that book and I, I'm a big fan of music. I love music so much. I see, uh, you know, I try to see as many concerts as I can in life. I really love engaging with it. It's very spiritual, a big part of my life. And coming into contact with his stories through your book was really enlightening. It really made me feel good. I found myself completely engrossed in your book. So I just wanted to thank you for that. That it, what, what an incredible character. You always talked about being in the film, but what an incredible character. And let's tell people who he is. Let's just give him a little background story. Let's tell people about Swami Nada Brahmananda. Sure. Uh, he actually started out uh, living in Mysore and, uh, in India, and he was the court musician for the king of Mysore. He was also a professor of music in Mysore. However, comes politics, the king got dethroned, and Nada Brahmananda lost his job. This was so depressing because he was unable to really adapt to normal life. All he knew was music and all he wanted was music. That for a period of time, he was considering actually committing suicide. And he told me stories about how he went up on the top of a mountain, deciding not to eat anymore and just die there. And instead, the animals came from everywhere and brought him food and somehow encouraged him indirectly. I don't think they spoke with him uh, to uh, to 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 survive. And eventually uh, he met Swami Shivananda, who was famous for founding in Rishikesh, the society, uh, the divine society uh, of, of monks, especially. And uh, Shivananda eventually talked Nada Brahmananda into becoming a monk. Nada Brahmananda did not like that idea, even though he was he had the instincts of the spiritual, a spiritually evolving person. But he realized in the end, as he told me, this was the only way he could escape having to live in the everyday world. This way, he was his he was appointed the musician for the Divine Life Society, and he was left to his own devices, but he also had to practice the spiritual uh, style of, uh, of, 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 of Shivananda. So that's how he became a, a monk, a somewhat reluctant monk, uh, who uh, was also a, a great musician. 
And when I met him, he was traveling around with several representatives of this Divine Life Society. Uh, this was in the late 70s, and there were a lot of uh, Indian uh, gurus wandering around the world and coming to America because it was a period when we were highly receptive to these uh, uh, visits. So that's how I got to meet him in, in, in of all places, New York City. Uh, <laughs> I thought it was very <laughs> profound reading about that because, you know, you think about how this person met with dignitaries, world leaders, musicians, famous musicians, all of these people, these humans. And then here you are in New York City getting to spend an extended time with them. I thought that was so amazing. But please go ahead. No, really. Well, I felt very lucky about that. Yeah. And he told me stories of, uh, of meeting C CEOs in, 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 the, in the States and converting some of them. Uh, he got he reduced one guy who to tears practically who, and reminded him, as he liked to do, that uh, our, uh, that well, basically, uh, we're all going to pass on to another reality eventually, and making money is not why we're here. Uh, and uh, so, yes, he did have uh, uh, you know fascinating interactions with the American people. But I think with me, he knew that I was a writer and I was sort of taking notes. And he kind of uh, both taught me music and told me stories about himself and his life. And so that way I both learned music from him. More, more than the specific music, I learned the spirit behind the music, that this is a discipline of the mind uh, that to design to tune us in to the divine dimension of reality. And, and, and in that sense, this, this was not a mere entertainment. But my own feeling is, I'll just slip, it, just slip this one thought, that I, I feel that all forms of music are potentially uh, useful and creative and, and have spiritual value. Uh, I don't want to say that only the music that I practiced with Swami Brahmananda was spiritual. All kinds of music, because the basics are there. Rhythm, melody, and the concentration of the mind and the concentration of the body. Because when you make music, uh, Nada Brahmananda liked to point out that his form of meditation, which is to make music, takes in the whole body, takes in the whole attention. Whereas if you just sit down and breathe deeply or meditate you know, on something quietly, you can sort of fall asleep and drift apart from the task of, of meditation. Whereas musical meditation grips you your whole body is in, engaged. You're breathing, you're singing. And of course, he was a specialist in the vibrations entailed in making music, but that's another part of the story. Maybe we can get to that. <laughs> and it's not surprising that the guy lived to be 97 years old and pretty much never was sick for a day in his entire life. Oh, so it's good powerful. advice there about how to use my It's very powerful. And you and when you read that in your book, it's just it's just mind-blowing because you no, if you're a spiritual person, if you've studied these things, you know that there are people that have mastered certain aspects of themselves, their spiritual self, their physical self, to gain these powers, these cities, these whatever they are, and, and they seem to defy physics, they seem to defy science, and yet it is because of their sheer focus of will. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And there's a lot of strange stories he told me uh, that we would call in the West paranormal, which I should say uh, for listeners, I have a major interest in uh, so-called parapsychology. Uh, (laughs) It's one of my major concerns. I started out, well, still am a philosopher. And one of the main challenges in philosophy is the mind-body problem. And uh, my views and Swami Nadaman, uh, the Swami's views are in contrast with the mainstream reductive materialism that seems to uh, dominate Western culture. Although it's changing, uh, Jake, it's changing. Uh, I'm not the only person out there preaching the need for a more spiritual philosophy. But I have many friends who are colleagues, uh, academics, uh, scientists uh, investigating the mysteries of the mind. But music is one way to do it uh, that I have found especially rewarding. I would say so as well. And with Swami Nada Brahmananda, you started to build a stronger relationship with him as you were taking these musical and spiritual lessons. And he really started to kind of bond with you specifically. Can you talk about that more? Uh, well, uh well, in what sense did, did you say that, that, that we started to bond? I, I missed that word. Oh, I'm sorry. Just the fact that when you were taking lessons and being in each other's space, that you started to really grow together to create a bond. Oh, oh for sure. Yeah, I felt the, the very first day uh, that, he, that I took a lesson with him, I, I was, uh, he's very precise and I was blundering and making mistakes and he kept correcting me. And then he suddenly said, Michael, I love you, but in this, no love, right? And like a true teacher. And at the very end of the first the lesson, I had forgotten to pay him. It's a piddling uh, uh, sum, by the way. So I walked back into the space where I had uh, taken my first lesson, and he completely forgot about the fact that I didn't pay him. All he said was, from now on, you're going up, up, up. And I thought, that's a perfect introduction. That's a perfect first lesson from a teacher uh, to uh, end up on that note, that optimistic note, that henceforth I was going to evolve upwardly. And in that sense, we had a, a bondage. And the other sense in which we bound together, I think he knew I was not there just for the music. I was there for him as a person. And I wanted to... Uh, uh, tell a story of Nada Brahmananda. Uh, and that I I finally did. Years later, I, I, I looked at the material I wrote and I said to myself, why haven't I tried to publish this? And as if some, you know, luck or coincid- divine coincidence, I managed to get a contract for this book in one day. Wow! Which is pretty unusual about writing, okay? I mean, if you're, <laughs> you're writing, you know, you don't get contracts in one day right so some, some some good spirit was looking after me and nada in the production of this book well i would say so because those stories are amazing and i love personally i love books like this where you have almost a and a with someone of such spiritual stature and i know he would not think of himself that way but he was just a very learned human and when you have that q a like the question and answer and just the stories uh, the way the book is laid out is absolutely amazing and i just really love the flow of it the stories are incredible they're just incredible and it's a great way to absorb the information well that, that that's great i, I mean he would uh 
uh, I would say something. For example, I, I was learning how to play the flute at that time. And uh, then he told me a story about Krishna's flute, which gave me a completely new perspective on the flute. He said, Krishna found a ban- little piece of bamboo one day, and he blew through it and decided to make music out of it. But there are six holes in this bamboo flute, and each hole represents one of our passions that we need to sublimate. He didn't use the word sublimate, but that's what he was talking about. He was saying, in effect, that art for him, and it's not just music, but in my judgment, he's clearly implying that all the arts are ways of sublimating our our more, let's say, lower forms of emotional life, our fears, our our, our erotic desires, everything, the whole works. But to sublimate through the arts into a higher form of consciousness, and that I really could relate to. I, I, I'm a person who believes that the the arts uh, are the absolute crucial need uh, to evolve as a species, uh, because they, the arts touch our hearts and our minds and our bodies. Our whole beings are brought into uh, activity or heightened activity through the arts, whereas just preaching to somebody you know, about being good, uh, as this is the case with religion very often. <laughs> I'm not, you know, putting it down, but it's maybe a little less effective. Well, yes. And also the arts, I'd like to add to that. I would say the arts create a pathway to the divine through inspiration. All artists seek inspiration, whether you're a musical artist, however, your art shows up you are asking for inspiration, for visions, for creativity, and that information comes from source. So the arts are really enriching humanity by creating that pathway to divine energy. I absolutely agree with you. And I think that one of my interests is trying to understand the nature of inspiration. And uh, I think here I've, I've written about this and explored it at some length. But basically, uh, in a way, inspiration involves breaking down the system. That's why the yogis will fast. So you weaken your body and you're, not, you're less distracted by your bodily needs if you learn to master your, you know, your basic uh, sexual and appetites. Quiet them down. And the other, of course, the thing is that the music or any form of meditation, what it does is empty you. It clears your mind. And the clearing of the mind, the emptying of the emotions that normally harass us from day to day and hour to hour, if you can learn to do that, it takes practice, just like it takes practice to play an instrument, you are creating the conditions that allow for inspiration. So I'm so glad you picked that word up. Yes. Well, it's a concept. It's a crucial part of the artistic experience, but also you're saying that mind control is a huge part of it. And that's something that the Swami talked about a lot. He said, mind control was life. Can you talk about that? Well, I absolutely, that's (laughs) one of the great things I learned from Swami. In fact, the first thing he virtually the same, the first thing he said to me when I first stepped into his office was mind control is life. He said, and then he said, and rhythm is music. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, uh, it, it, the, it's 
something that I think we need, we Americans need to wake up uh, we, uh, to the importance of uh, our own minds and learning how uh, to uh, control our minds. We often hear, recently I read an article putting down the idea of, of, um, of free will because our wills are not strong enough to really change ourselves and I think this is an ad for some kind of drugs that would help us, you see. Uh, and uh, I thought that, that was completely wrong. Human beings are quite capable, if they train themselves and think about it, to shape their own consciousness, shape their own lives. And the key is mind, mind control. And that's why the, the value of meditation, the arts, diet, all of these things are means that we can any and human being in various ways and various degrees of intensity can embark upon the task of uh, becoming a more open, more enriched, and more inspired human being. And whether it be through the arts or through science or through politics, I mean, of course, we'd like to see more inspired politicians, <laughs> right? Uh, and uh, but. Uh, yeah, this is this business about mind control, which is uh, people sort of shy away from it, but uh, it, it's a central idea in his entire philosophy. And without mind control, you can't make music because you can't even count one, two, three, four and keep your rhythms if you don't control your mind, right? So uh, this is a, a central a theme uh, a, 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 that we need to tune into. Yes, and it seems that when we do activate that when we do gain control of our mind, the human experience dramatically increases. We're processing more energy. We're able to perceive things in a different way. There's a new source of energy that's no longer being depleted by the constant hustle, the fuss, the demands of, of the mind. Absolutely. Uh, that, that word depletion describes so many of us. I mean, we're. All, I mean, just thinking about it, every time I get on this uh, on the on my computer and uh, and uh, internet and so I'm being bombarded by everybody wants to possess my consciousness. Right now, I think the concept of possession should be introduced into con modern discourse because the the technology, which in many ways is marvelous and useful and creative, blah blah. We know that, but it's also a weapon that seems designed to appropriate anybody's consciousness that they can, anybody's consciousness that can be invested in some, you know, capitalist project need or whatever you want to call it. So we have to struggle uh, nowadays to uh, maintain the integrity of our own minds. And I'm not against technology and uh, the modern evolution of where we're at, but the thing is how to use it in a creative way. Uh, we need to be real careful that it doesn't end up using us rather than we using it. Yes, there needs to be a balance. It seems like it can help us achieve higher states of consciousness by being kind of an auxiliary source of material stability, but it doesn't have to be the be all end all. People are addicted to their devices. They're addicted to a lot of different things. They're addicted to engaging with arguments with random people across mm -hmm. the world. And, and all of that depletes your spiritual energy. But one thing I did want to talk about is that there's this really cool concept that was in the book 
that was talking about converting every drop of experience into God consciousness. So everything you're doing, everything you do, every iota of energy that you utilize, you're experiencing it through the filter of God consciousness. Yeah, well, I, I, the way that I make sense out of that is, first of all, to think that uh, music in a wider concept, not just music and beautiful sounds and, and instruments, but rather the concept of harmony, which is one of the essential features of music, that we can metaphorically extend the concept of music and learn to see not only in music, but in all facets of our experience, when we meet new people, when we're out shopping, when we're struggling to raise our children in the right way, whatever experience we're exposed to, there is always the option, the possibility, the raw material there to make harmony and beauty and meaningfulness out of these experiences. So music extended as a metaphor does indeed cover the whole range of human experience and therefore the the highest principle of the the underlying let us say for the moment uh divine reality uh which uh, is central of course to swami narabrahmananda's uh, uh hindu philosophy uh of course if you're bereft of that fundamental insight then it's more likely you're going to be uh, exposed to all the distractions without any means of of protecting yourself and being sucked up into uh, the maelstrom of superficiality and anxieties that we are easily uh, swept up uh, into without some kind of inner discipline. And uh, so, yeah, that, that that's one of the great lessons I learned from uh, Nada. Uh, the need for a discipline, or the word that he, the Indian word is sadhana, uh, which means spiritual practice. And that can be anything. It could be music. It could be our profession. What you're doing, what I do, what ordinary everyday people are doing can be converted into a spiritual practice, depending how you do it. And in that sense, uh, they, we, we can talk about the... Uh, uh, the the wide ranging implications of music and higher forms of consciousness. It's all there. Yes, it is all there. And it seems that there have been several instances of music changing the course of history, music changing the course of governments and just consciousness itself. It has an immense power. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And, uh, again, the music itself, the harmonies of, the potential harmonies of, that we can experience transcend just, that's the point I tried to make in, in the book. And even Nada Brahmananda hints at that, uh, that that's why he says you don't need a, an instrument. All you need is yourself to make music, as it were, to, to, to find harmony. Uh, you know, his, his big idea, of course, is uh, the Indian ideas that we're right now, the human race is going through uh the kali yuga the yes. period of uh of, of conflicts and uh I, I don't know if you if that's a new phrase for you um but uh, no i have had several guests talk about this it's a very uh -huh. big concept that's out there now it's getting more into mainstream consciousness is right. and 
from what I understand, it's a cyclical experience where towards the end of a cycle from the Hindu perspective called the Kali Yuga, which is kind of a closing of this version of humanity. Yes. Well, it is that. And the, the closing, I mean, uh, Kali means conflict. I mean, there's also the goddess Kali. That's different. That's a little different thing. She's the goddess of night and darkness. But the Kali Yuga is the Yuga, the age of conflict. And I'll be darned if we don't need to be told <laughs> that we're in, the, in an age of conflict. And how I like to look at it, first of all, uh, we're in conflict with ourselves in countless ways. We are conflict. We are in conflict between groups, peoples, nations, and above all, the most dangerous form of conflict that we are facing today, and that definitely points toward the end of the cycle, as you just indicated, is the conflict that human beings have with nature. We're completely out of touch with the natural world. We think of the natural world as just a, uh, a resource for extracting goods and 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 virtues and uh, materials for human use. And uh, that is obviously, as we are learning gradually now, not so gradual, <laughs> but uh, day by day, what a catastrophe uh, consumerism ha has uh given rise to in the course of uh, modern history where we're talking about eight or so years left before uh things get really out of control unless we change <laughs> drastically in, in new ways i think we will change because at the center of all humans at the center of all is love so i think that once we truly start to resonate with that we raise our frequency we'll be able to be more sensitive to the energies of the earth and the animals that live on it. And perhaps we'll finally understand the symbiotic nature of our experience with the earth. A lot of us get that. A lot of us do get that on this planet, but the bulk of humanity, I would say does not. And the people that are harvesting these resources do not. And the interesting thing is that the need for these things isn't necessarily bad. Like people like their car, they like their phone, right. they like their houses. Right. The big issue is what it's made out of and how it's off course. All we really need is a course correction. And you think about these gurus like Sai Baba who can manifest material things. All humans have this ability to manifest and we can manifest any world we want. We can manifest a world where we have everything we've ever wanted and also be completely in harmony with the earth and in harmony with God and everything. Well, I completely uh, agree with you that the, that potentiality is there. I mean, if one human being can uh, master the art of living, as it were, uh, it, why not all of us, you see, in principle? Right. But uh, that's a big challenge. Uh, one of the big challenges is that there are so many people that we can't even feed and conduct our lives in in ways that are uh, humane, it's just by the sheer numbers and massive uh, uh, the numbers of human beings on the planet. But beside that, it, it is you know there are philosophies and attitudes and uh, uh, that are just simply, I mean, the vision that you described uh, a moment ago. It is possible, but how do you get there? 
Uh, I mean, how does it happen? And, and you said love. I mean, all of the great mystics and the poets and visionaries, uh, the near-death experiences, for example, people who have near-death experiences, they all come back with the same message, that a glimpse of enlightenment is a glimpse of the marvelous, creative, and satisfying power of love. But alas, where is it? <laughs> it's here, <laughs> it's here, from, in, here and there, in certain places, there's lots of love going on and lots of loving people, but it's a challenge uh, uh, to get the rest of us uh, on that trip to make it a, a trip for all of us. Yes, it is a gargantuan challenge. However, there isn't a problem without a solution. There is a road to a heaven on earth, united earth scenario. It's there. We just have to dial it in, but it's possible. Yeah, no, I agree. But how, how do you, you know, people think of it this way. Um, if you discover that you suddenly have a lung problem from, from smoking too much uh, cigarettes and you're facing your own mortality, that is going to prompt you to change your habits. And uh, so in for many of us, not all of us, we need to be shocked into a new awareness. And my view uh, of what's going on is that, um, and this is consistent with the whole idea of the Kali Yuga, if we really are, as it appears to be, coming to a climactic uh, moment of human and uh, planetary history, uh, maybe we can begin to imagine something like a kind of global near-death experience, that things will get so bad, so terrifying, so disruptive, that that the majority of human beings on the planet wake up like the person who has a near-death experience is forced, as it were, into waking up to this blissful, loving potential that surrounds and pervades us, but our eyes are closed. So we may have to go through some serious end-time dramas before we wake up and open up our eyes, all of us, you see, as a species. And, uh, and it's something to look forward to. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. We're only growing. I mean, it seems like even though the path is up and down and up and down, humans themselves, the path of humanity, it, it seems like it has kind of a linear path upwards. And really that near-death experience that you're talking about could be an awakening of the DMT that's in every human's brains at the exact same time. What mm -hmm. if there was a divine epiphany because people that have near death experiences, they, they activate that DMT in their brain that activates when every human dies and they have these experiences. It, it allows the consciousness to go to these higher dimensions. What if it's not a material situation, a material near death, but what if, there's a spiritual activation of some biochemistry, which allows consciousness itself, human consciousness to access those higher dimensions and then change. It could be something like that as well. I think so. Indeed. You know, so there are researchers and some of my colleagues uh, are doing this research that it tries to see what is the state of the brain. What's going on in the brain when a moment of illumination or a moment of uh, ESP occurs? And the indications are, surprisingly and interestingly, that the brain gets quieter. 
there's less going on in the brain when a uh, a person is on the threshold of inspiration, meaning less uh, clutter, less activities to as, allow for the opening. Now, in a near-death experience, that uh, secession, the, the use of the brain, is just brought to a complete end. But why? I mean, temporarily, uh, because when, if, if there is a, for example, a, uh, uh, cardiac arrest, instantly the brain is deprived of oxygen. And normally, when that happens, there should be no consciousness. Ironically, and shockingly, from a philosophical point of view, when that happens, contrary to what science predicts, people not only continue to have experiences of consciousness, but they have the most fantastic experiences of their lives, which transform them. So there is a model out there that we can work on to learn how to uh, advance and evolve our consciousness. But uh, it's a challenge to get people interested. <laughs> I think only as we approach the crisis, the crisis is going to inspire it. The, the worse, the more the crisis impinges on our future, the greater the plausibility of uh, some kind of collective aspiration and transformation taking place. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And it's just because I don't know, are humans lazy in a way? Do we really need to be at death's door to activate our higher selves? I'm not really sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The answer is yes, I'm afraid, <laughs> to the average person. How many people do you know uh, are just spontaneously decide, oh, I'm going to transform my life so that I become a more enlightened person? This, it doesn't happen, right? It doesn't normally does not happen. But uh, circumstances drive us to the edge where we are inclined to leap over the edge into a new reality. Yes. And our moment here in the Kali Yuga, Swami said that moksha is difficult, but yoga of the yoga of music is the best way to achieve enlightenment during the Kali Yuga and also the best medicine. Well, for sure. I mean, and uh, I think what he's saying and what he said to me many times in earlier phases of history, when men and men and women were more attuned to the divine, but as we have evolved as a species, uh, as I, uh, the way I would put it, as as a materialistic technology evolved, and uh, which made possible two things that are wreaking havoc on our planet, uh, namely uh, militarism and consumerism. Take those two two harmless little ism words. And you have the global crisis. And how do you stop that, you see? And, and that, that's the challenge. Uh, do we really need, you know, every time I go into a supermarket, I like to buy cereal, okay? I eat cereal in the morning. And there's a 100 foot, I measured it once, about 100 feet long list of all the different kinds of, of, of um, cereal that you can buy. Now, is that necessary? I remember when I was a kid, you know, Wheaties, that, that was it. <laughs> Who needs to go through, you know, a million different shapes and forms? All the energy that is consumed in the transportation, in the production, it's not necessary. We don't need all of these things to be happy, to be healthy, and to be well. So we, as 
has been pointed out by a number of people. The challenge that's facing us today is one in which we have to change how we live, the basic attitudes. And I think the two points uh, that we have to work on is, number one, empathy. We need empathy so that we can start relating to other human beings more imaginatively and more creatively. But we also need to know how to take care of our own bodies to make us, ourselves more both healthy and, and independent, but also more receptive to the creative possibilities latent within us all. But, yes. Uh, it, it's a challenge. It is very much a challenge, but it is part of the human experience. So we can unlock that. And there are people that do to make the choice to become more enlightened, but you're right. The majority of humans, they're just caught up in the matrix. They're just not really engaged or inspired, or it's not just in their consciousness to be motivated to grow. But the sound, the yoga of sound, this is nada yoga, right? Right. Right. Nada me meaning, uh, it actually has a, a number of meanings, but it's the combination. In other words, uh, Sound that is intelligible is the exact meaning of nada. Uh, in other words, meaningful sound. Uh, and uh, and that includes the musical components of sound. But yeah, that, that's, that's nada. And, well, um, and was this named after Swami or was this something that he adopted as well? Well, you know, Swami Nada Brahmananda, that, those are all philosophical names. So he once told me, he says, I am the man of sound who will make you completely happy. <laughs> In other words, he names himself after what he does, uh, rather than just, uh, you know, your name is Joe Schmo, right? Uh, without any, any meaning, <laughs> uh, unless you're a Schmoer. <laughs> and you know how it smells, real, right? But so that—that's what his name. It, it, those are just he's named after the properties that he excels in, and uh, realizes in to a great extent. Well, I thought it was interesting that the Spanish word "nada," which means nothing. He lived that way. He lived completely in the moment. He had no property. Everything was given to him by God, which he constantly pointed out. He's like, right. look, watch what happens. Like, I'm just completely taken care of. The food shows up. The music shows up. If right. I just surrender, right. this happens. Right. Like, I thought that was very interesting, the nada correlation there. It is. It is. And he, yes, he was very much... Um, uh, they have a little chapter in the book called "The Secret of of, uh, of Never Getting Tired," and uh, yeah. <laughs> when that question was posed, he his answer was exactly what you just said. I don't rely on anything or anybody but the highest principle. I always surrender, and no matter what happens, uh, I'm not doing anything. I'm being carried through the world by my connection with the divine that that's his idea and his confidence his trust and that of course is not you know that's a fairly universal spiritual idea that trust in something higher than yourself i tend to think in terms of uh, trusting in the creative unconscious uh that's not inconsistent with the idea of god or the divine it's just using a terminology more uh, i think contemporary and acceptable to uh, educated people, let's say. 
uh, and, and, and so the unconscious, the creative unconscious. Yes, it seems that he had absolute faith, which activated his subconscious in such a way that tapped into the law of attraction. So he, uh, by having the most concrete, absolute faith that you could possibly have, he attracted everything he needed into his life at any moment, at any time. <laughs> That's very true. And he was completely... Uh, confident and but he was also careful and political he knew uh he was having difficulties when he was in new york city with the people who brought him there and they were paying him absolute peanuts but and i was trying to help him uh, deal with some of these everyday problems and i noticed that he was extremely polite and careful he never got angry i would have gotten angry <laughs> <laughs> I would have sounded off against my uh, people who were oppressing me. But ne he never did anything like that. And he uh, was ready to uh, just take it as it comes because he had this inner uh, security and an inner style, as it were, of coping with the external world. And uh, that's something you get by a lot of practice. Yes. And none of that caused depletion his worldview how he processed those experiences allowed his energy field to stay intact which is why while well, partially why he was so physically healthy and had such a long life well yeah i mean he was uh, very physically strange uh, as you may remember in the book he he, he slept two hours a night regularly right. And he never dreamed. And he actually went to a bunch of scientists in Ottawa, Canada, and they tested for three nights in a row. They had him in, uh, in, in, in the sleeping lab and all hooked up, you know, to the various devices, to see what's going on in his brain. And the man never had any signs of REM sleep. And he slept only two hours, woke up, and now I'm ready for, for you know for the day. <laughs> so somehow, and by the way, he was a, a bit on the plump side, uh, and uh, but it's quite staggering that the, the fact that he, uh, I mean, his his physicality was objectively strange. Uh, but then again, a lot of strange things uh, happened to him. There are stories uh, in the, in the book about his encounters with the paranormal, but. Uh, the guy himself was paranormal. <laughs> yes, he said that. He often said, if, I, if I'm quoting your book correctly, that he was not of this world. Well, yes, yes. He was. He felt that very much. And uh, the way he behaved uh, it, it sort of supported that, that claim, and uh, for sure. Well, when you were studying with him, and I don't want to give away too much of your book because there's so many amazing stories. I want everybody to check it out. But when you were studying with him, he had a student that was with him, a woman from California. I mean, hopefully I'm pronouncing this correctly. Parvati? Parvati, I think. Yeah, Parvati. Parvati. And, and where is Parvati today? Because she seemed to have excelled uh, at being with Swami yeah, and learning. I, I, it's been quite a while, and I, I, I'm, I, I never knew her real name. That was her Indian name. And I'm almost certain that... If I, I, if I try to track her down on the internet, I'm not going to find her. But what I probably need to do, if I, especially now that I have a book where she's in the book, <laughs> uh, I might be able to uh, uh, connect with some of the Indian groups 
uh, perhaps in, in India, because he went back to India, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if Parvati went to India with him and is still there. Uh, he ah. died in 2002, I think, or something like that, the age of 97. Right. And then what was his death like? Did, I mean, did you hear about it? Were there pictures? No, no I knew nothing. Uh, I left him uh, in the late 70s. So because uh, he he was just about to go back to India. Uh, so I, I there was no we didn't stay in touch or anything like that. And uh, so I have no idea. It's possible I could try to track him down in, in Rishikesh. The story of him and Parvati, and uh, maybe I should do that. You get. Oh, I was highly interested. I was highly interested after reading your book. I, they're wonderful people. Obviously, characters, real life characters in your book. I just wondered, you know, what the rest of the story was because it seemed if yeah. he died in yeah. two thousand two, and and you uh, saw him last in seventy seven. There's there's right. a lot more of a story to tell there. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, and. Uh, I, 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 I honestly, well, you know, I was just starting teaching philosophy and I had my own other activities that uh, I, I didn't, I, I could have, though, tried to keep up with him, but he never wrote. I'm not even sure if he knew how to write. He told me once he never read a book in his life. Oh, wow. <laughs> Everything he knew, he memorizes. And he, for me, he introduced a new way of looking at the concept of learning by heart. So you learn by heart, meaning all the lessons, all the teachings are inside you, in your own body, your own memory, and you never step out of yourself to check it out in a book or go to somewhere where you have to get confirmed. It's in you. And uh, that's that's a great uh, model, as it were, to absorb your wisdom into yourself and be a free spirit as a result. Yes, it does seem like in modern times, people do externalize everything. And there was a point in human history that you talk about in your book where we weren't that way. We, we did learn things by heart and, and there was something lost as we started to move away and, and externalize all of our forms of learning. Yeah, I, I think that there, there is that idea. On the other hand, it's, uh, I mean, having the written world and, you know, especially now, the digital universe does expose us to an infinite variety of information that we could never achieve on our own in ancient times when there was no technology and small groups of people spread out in different parts of the world aiming toward enlightenment. Now, we are, we are in a position that we can begin to communicate with everybody on the planet, technologically at least, and maybe as we evolve uh, in deeper ways hopefully in deeper ways in the merely at the merely uh, mere technological level well it has connected us i mean it has created more of a unified mind consciousness it's it's just it's in its early stages so hopefully that technology can assist us and just help us evolve into what you describe or maybe this is just your idea a music inspired paradigm of consciousness well, yeah, I, 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 in the broad sense of music, I would say that uh, because I don't want to exclusively focus on music uh, as the only art form. Uh, my one of my insights I got from Nada Brahmana that all the arts uh, are under the muses. You know, this notion of the muses, 
there are how many, seven or whatever, all the different arts were understood in the ancient Greek world as emanating from a bunch of goddesses. I love that idea, by the way. Me too. <laughs> and But, you know, it, these are archetypes. So the power of music, you're very aware of it. There's a higher kind of music that activates your spiritual side that can help you evolve there and also heal you. That's not necessarily a part of Western culture, but I want to ask you if you've ever been exposed, I have to ask you this. Have you been exposed to the concepts of these grateful dead concerts where thousands, if not tens of thousands of people in the past, now that Jerry's passed, would get together in a spiritual sense in ingest some form of plant medicine or psychedelics and have an ecstatic experience focusing their energy on this improvisational psychedelic music. What do you think mm -hmm. about that movement? I, I, first of all, I have to say this, that I've never been much of a, uh, I've been a, a jazz man when it comes to music and classical and Renaissance music. But what you just described, and I'm not totally unaware of these the varieties of, uh, of, uh, of events that you're just describing, I'm completely open to that being a real possibility. And uh, I, I, uh, uh, I, I, I've never heard of what you just described, and it sounds interesting. I'd like to learn more about it. I, I, that, uh, why not? Uh, <laughs> well, it yeah. was a huge part of American culture in the 60s through the 90s. And even today, some of the members are still touring around. And it was around this kind of Dionysian experience where you could get past the self by taking these psychedelics and the music would play a shamanic role. And every, in the case of the Grateful Dead, it was very much like jazz because every show was completely different musically. They never played the music the same way twice. And that allowed this energy to manifest that thinned the veil between dimensions and very high, very cosmic energy would come through, which was very much the appeal of that situation. Yeah. I, I, that sounds uh, entirely plausible especially when you bring in the uh the uh the, the psychedelics incidentally i don't mean to give the impression that i'm uh an innocent uh innocent <laughs> psychedelic but uh i was more more of a uh, as i say that that music i mean i remember the beatles and stuff you know i'm, I'm an old guy so I, I i the 60s uh well the 60s i was also um i was a student to getting a you know getting my degree at Columbia University. And, uh, but, uh, and there's where I got introduced to psychedelics too. <laughs> but no, th th I, I didn't uh, do that kind of music stuff. I mean, I mean, I knew about, about it, but it was not, I mean, I, I went to some concerts, you know, uh, but it was not my thing, basically. Sure. Uh, and, well, it's still out there. Completely it receptive to it, you know. There's still a psychedelic music underground that's still kind of happening in mainstream American uh -huh. culture. There's still a chance to check it out. Look, if I'm ever in New York, me and uh -huh. you are going. We're going to a concert right. together. I'm going to blow your mind. 
Uh, <laughs> that's not like a good idea. Uh, but speaking of mind blowing, I mean, Swami Nada Brahmananda was mind blowing. I mean, being around him, his energy, just reading the words in the book, it's just so powerful. And what I really loved about him, I'm going to be completely honest. I've been around yeah. a lot of musicians in my life and they have a certain swagger, a certain je ne sais quoi, if you could say uh -huh. that. That's what I picked up on just reading his words. He seemed like a funny musician. Like he had a sense yeah, yeah. of humor. He was very like humble as well. Like he was willing right. to tell you anything that you asked. Right. 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 And, and yeah, and yeah, absolutely. And an, another point to add about his musician persona, he, the only time I ever heard him get a little critical or a little miffed, was when he was having to deal with other musicians. He, there are stories uh, you may recall in, in, where they where he felt uh, put on or uh, or ignored in certain circumstances or not appreciated. And uh, he also told me about musicians that would come to him claiming to know things that they didn't, and he would sort of. Uh, demonstrate to them their shortcomings. <laughs> so that, there was a little touch of ego there that came out in his uh, music, musician's persona, uh, which is perfectly, you know, understandable and human. Well, he absolutely dedicated every fiber of his being to music. So, you know, he can flex a little bit. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's so many cool things that he talked about that I want to touch on. Come correct. This is something he said quite a bit. And let's talk about what that means. What is the meaning of come correct? I mean, obviously you can kind of extrapolate that it just means doing things authentically and doing them with complete integrity. But what else is there? Tell me about that. Well, he, he used that expression right from the beginning. Uh, I think that was just the result of his limited English uh, capacities. And uh, but it, it, it is a phrase is constantly. And I think what he meant was uh, that in every context, of, uh, whether it be musical or just existential, there are circumstances and you as a person, as a master musician, so to speak, uh, of art and as well as of life, uh, there's always that option to to uh, make everything come together in a beautiful, satisfying, and harmonious way, and when that happens, you've come correct. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, so that could come in a, in a conversation, a meeting with somebody. But it was one of his favorite metaphors, due to his lack of extensive knowledge of English. But I thought it was sort of sweet and funny. And coming correct also has a funny kind of slightly erotic uh, uh, connection. <laughs> correct, you know that that's just kind of funny, and I, I, I picked up on that. But he didn't he didn't know that I was picking up on that aspect of, <laughs> of the of the phrase. Well, you but just I think, yeah, that's all it means. Yeah. Well, you just want to be your best self and just bring everything, your completeness, to every action again that's experiencing everything with god consciousness putting it through that filter right but on, but on the other i want to add this point this is when you said that but never with effort no no, no you know in, uh, in in parapsychology there's a thing called uh, release of effort syndrome that's when you're trying to connect with something but you're trying too hard 
and the trying too hard can get in the way. Uh, we've all noticed that, right? If you try too hard, that can get in the way of something. So he would always say, smooth, no, no, no big effort. Don't, you know, you're not going to kill yourself here. Don't push it too hard. Just the, the, what you need, though, is practice and total immersion. But don't overdo it. Don't strain yourself. Relax. Chill out. That's his idea. And uh, and then the other big thing with Swami, not a Brahmana, he'd look around when we'd go walking at the sky and he'd say, it's all beautiful. It's a dream. And I figured out why he 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 was why he may never have dreamt. And I may be wrong in this. Is, I'm just guessing now. But if you live your life in such a way that you see everything around you as a dream, you may not have a need to dream when you go to sleep. But <laughs> uh, at any rate, uh, he would always say this. Uh, it, 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 whatever would happen, even we take a walk in Manhattan and surrounded by thousands of people and stores, and he'd just like be like a child staring. It's like a dream. It's just wonderful. But it's unreal. See? It's not ultimately real. That's right. the point. Yes, that's the divine <laughs> paradox. It's it's both real and unreal at the same time. The experiences, the lessons, the things that right. happen in this dimension, yes, they have energetic value, but at the end of the day, it's all an illusion. It's all just a dream. Right, right. right. And also because it doesn't last forever, right? I mean, <laughs> it, it's, it's things are changing all the time. Absolutely. Uh, and we're, yeah. we're moving into something bigger, but... With Swami, he told you a lot of stories, a lot of stories, and there's so many good ones in your book. There's a real plethora of positive, affirming stories. But can you tell me one story that's amazing that wasn't in your book? Oh, gee. Um, uh, there were things, uh, you know, it's a long time ago that I had this uh, connection and oddly enough, I've, I've found some notes lately uh, in my piles and piles of notes of where, where I have stuff about Nanda Brahmananda that I didn't use in the book. But I'm sorry, at the moment, I can, they're not, it's not coming back to me. <laughs> That's okay. That's just, yeah. you know, he, helping he, people realize there's a sequel book coming where you find poverty, you get more <laughs> stories dialed in, and I, I'm ready. I want to see the Yoga of Sound <laughs> Part 2. I, I, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> there is one story I can tell, and I don't know if it's a good one or a happy one, but okay. the woman who introduced me to Nada Brahmananda was a psychotherapist and she was the most sensitive woman that I think I ever met in terms of just emotionally beautiful, sensitive soul. But uh, after the, in the course of the uh, writing, having this experience with Nara Brahmananda and this woman whose name was Elida, she mentally went into a bad way and I hate to throw this uh, dark note in. No, it's uh, fine. This is human experience of, my, uh, of, of our interview. But she ended up committing suicide. Oh. Uh, I don't think it have anything to do with Nada Brahmananda. I, on the contrary, she went to him hoping he would help her. I lost contact with her. I only heard later on that uh, she uh, came to an unhappy end. But uh, I don't know the story there. But uh, 
he 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 went to the hospital where she was with me and we checked her out so he i mean how many how many teachers are willing to follow the life of, of a student to, to to try to help them in terms of their serious uh problems so he was deeply moved by her uh, unhappy uh ending wow and uh that's yeah. incredible he actually went to identify the body with you no 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 not the body no we we we, we both of us went to visit her uh, after she was released from the hospital and, oh and i we see at I her see. house and uh on 16th street in, in new york city and uh we tried she was okay uh, at that meeting but then a couple of months later uh, i got the bad news about her oh. so well, she's in her better place now, and she's I with Nada. Hope so. I hope so. <laughs> They're making beautiful music together, smiling and laughing at yeah. us right now for being yeah. concerned at all. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so do you have dreams yourself about Swami Nada? Uh, I, I, only that one dream that I had long before I met him. But you don't have dreams now, later in life, he doesn't show up in no, the dream dimension? No, actually, I don't have much of a dream life now. Maybe I'm imitating Nada in that regard. I hardly have dreams uh, uh, too, too much uh, nowadays. Okay. So, but I like to dream with my eyes open. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and live in that way where life is a dream. This is the dream, and that also taps into a person's manifestation abilities. You think about what you can manifest in a dream, we can also do that in the physical reality. We just have to learn how to do that. Right. So, wow. We've had an incredible interview. This is such a great story. I, like I said, I'm very thankful that you introduced Swami Nanda Brahmananda into my life. It's, and you're introducing him to listeners all over the world right now that may not have ever heard of him, like myself. So, well, I, I feel good about that because I think, as far as I know, this is the only book that will preserve his experience and his value as a human being from complete oblivion. Uh, so uh, I, I, uh, that's one reason I decided to write the book. Wow. I think you did a fantastic thing, man. I, I thank you for doing that. That's just incredible. But before we go, you know, I want to tell people about your book. I want to tell people where to find it. So the book we're talking about, which is about Michael's experiences with Swami Nanda Brahmananda, is called The Yoga of Sound, The Life and Teachings of the Celestial Songman, Swami Nanda Brahmananda. And it's available anywhere books are sold. It's available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble, wherever you get books, order this book. There's even a Kindle version. It's an incredible book. He has other books as well. And his website, if you want to check out his websites, there is consciousunbound.blogspot and also paintingtheparanormal.org. And you can find him there and you can check him out. And before we go, Michael, we've had a, such an incredible discussion, but is there one relevant message in the time of Kali Yuga? Is there a hopeful message? Is there something that Swami imparted to you that you can leave our listeners with? Absolutely. And that is that each of us should have some kind of practice. And the, the uh, Indian word is sadhana, S-A-D-H-A-N-A, -A, but that's not important. 
use the word practice. What I got from uh, the, the Swami was the importance of having some kind of spiritual practice. It can be anything, anything that you can work on on a steady basis and notice how you're getting better, how you are uh, getting into it more effectively. Uh, but the transformation of consciousness can can only take place I mean, sometimes it can. I mean, if you're hitting the head struck by lightning, for example, there are many <laughs> stories about people struck by lightning, and they are literally enlightened. Uh, but most of us aren't going to be that lucky or unlucky, as the case may be. So we need to have an intentionality and a way of trying to tune in to the deepest, most creative part of ourselves. And we can do that by some practice. It could be anything. It could be art, it could be music, it could be taking care of your children, it could be uh, your job, your creative form of life, whatever you're doing, if you do it in a certain way, a mindful and intensely focused way, uh, you're bound to evolve and uh, reach into areas that are surprising and, and novel and potentially transformative. That would be the main th uh, lesson in one word I would convey <laughs> to, to people. Well, that's absolutely beautiful. Yes, we all need to evolve. We all need to have that practice. Whatever it is, it doesn't have to be extravagant. It can be the simplest thing in the world. Just like you can find enlightenment in one note of music or the most extravagant piece of music, it's just about the practice, the intention, the energy that you put behind it. That's so beautiful, Michael. It. That's it. Exactly. Wow. I want to thank you for being here again, people check out the book, the yoga of sound and thank you so much, Michael. Well, thank you. It's been a great conversation. It's been fantastic. We were in perfect rhythm. What a harmonious <laughs> conversation. Please hold through the outro music and everyone. Yes. Again, check out the book. Check out the website. Incredible story. We now know about Swami Nada Brahmananda. He's here with us. We he lives on. So wow, powerful. And we will see you next week. Midnight on Earth.